everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today we're going to be listening to audio from one of our shows that ran inside the Discipleship.org Collective, which features Dane Often. He's the Executive Director of Navigators Church Ministries, and he took some time just to share with us his thoughts and knowledge and experience about disciple-making culture. Navigators has had success in helping college campuses, military bases, and workplaces become more discipleship-minded, but they realized that the next place that needed help with that was actually the local church. But rather than trying to bring a new discipleship strategy to churches, they knew what churches really needed was a new culture altogether. They used the GIDC process to do just that for the local church to help them grow intentional disciple-making cultures. All right, everybody, I hope that you enjoy this episode. This is Dane Often with Navigators Church Ministries. My name is Dane Alfin, and I'm the executive director of Navigator Church Ministries, and I will be your host and teacher for a little bit here. And we're going to talk about disciple-making culture and what that is and how do we build one. And I serve with the Navigators, and uh, my role is with the 120 staff that work with churches and partner with church leaders to help build disciple-making cultures that transform communities. Uh, we're thrilled to walk alongside and help and nudge and uh, stay close to pastors. Uh, it's a big thrill for us. Uh, before uh, I was with the Navigators, I worked with uh, uh, at a church in Akron called the Chapel. I was the group's pastor there for nine years. And before that, I was with Young Life. And so I've had a, uh, a lot of different experiences that uh, have really benefited me over the, over the years. I'm married to Helen, and we have three great girls that are starting their careers, and we're really proud of them. So uh, that's a little bit about me. So uh, one of the, let me tell you a story, another story about myself. And so when I was five years old, my dad came to the dinner table and said to all of us, hey, we're moving. <laughs> and we were like, what? So uh, pretty soon, I, you know, who knows? I can't remember exactly the timeline as a five-year-old, but it seemed like almost immediately that we hopped on a plane and we're flying to our new, new place that we were going to live. Um. One of the layover places was Dallas, Texas, and so we landed in in, uh, uh, in Dallas, and my brother and I uh, kind of spied something in the airport. We thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we need, and so we kept bugging my mom, and somehow, my mom, who only gives gifts what you need, not what you want, some reason she gave in that day, so my brother and I conned her into getting these cowboy hats, these white cowboy hats, felt cowboy hats. And my brother Dave and I, we, we thought we were just the coolest things. We had to put these things on the plane and we flew. And so when we got to our destination, uh, you know, we disembarked the plane. And back in those days, you you walked on the tarmac. There was no gate. <laughs> so you kind of just got off the plane, went down the ladder and out. And I remember kind of looking around and going, you know, nobody else has a cowboy hat around here. And come to listen to it and see it. It's no one's really speaking English. And so we had a rude awakening as we landed in Mexico city and in a completely different culture, you know, there, there was a language barrier that we did not understand. There were practices that we also didn't understand what they were like. Um, after we moved in for a little bit, we, uh, 
the neighbors really graciously, they invited me to uh, their son's birthday party. And so I had experienced a few birthday parties in my life. And so I went, my sister went with me and uh, kind of stood with me. And, and it was like 40 kids all over this yard. It was crazy. And then they brought this thing out. And I, I didn't know what it was then, but it was a piñata. And they bring this thing out and, and these kids start whacking at this thing. And soon enough, that, that piñata was broken and all 40 kids jumped into the middle. Uh, I, I was totally surprised. <laughs> I had no idea what they were doing. They were jumping for the candy and getting the kids were coming out with big halls. And, you know, I, I was just kind of standing on the sidelines with my sister going, uh, what am I supposed to do? Well, graciously, the the host she she came over and saw that I was that I was an American and I had no idea what I was doing there, and she had some of the kids give me some of the candy, so I, I went home happy too. And but you know we learned a lot about what it was like to be in a different culture, and and uh, it's been a good experience and a reminder for me is is as we're building a disciple-making culture, there are um, a lot of similarities and helpful things when we think about uh, a foreign culture or a different culture than our own. Um, so, uh, you know, culture is very interesting because it's the shared languages, values, practices, and stories. Uh, Annie Crouch calls it and says, uh, you know, it's the, it's the way that we... Uh, it's the way that we do things. Uh, it's what humans do to make the world is, is the exact way he phrases it. And, um, and so in a disciple-making culture, we're trying to think through, well, what's the shared languages? What's the shared values and practices of a disciple-making culture? How, how, how do we explain disciple making? How do we, what are the values that we have? Um, you know, many of us got into disciple making for a number of different reasons. So, you know, one of the reasons I, I've been hooked on it since I was in high school was that uh, the guy that discipled me and my buddies, uh, you know, he, he kind of taught us how to read the scriptures he showed us a love for the scriptures and obedience and taught us how to reach out to our friends. Uh, I, I just learned a ton. And so, you know, I was really hooked. This was so different than anything that I experienced. Um, others of us have gotten into discipleship because we've watched somebody else. We've seen them transform right before our eyes. Um, you know, it's always amazing when you meet with a new believer and they begin to either read scripture or they begin to pray out loud. It is it is an absolute powerful experience as you watch someone else take those initial steps. So what we're going to talk about today is this whole idea about disciple making and a disciple making culture. And it's different than life to life because culture involves a group of people. You know, if you will, it's almost like organizational uh, discipleship, if you will, because you have every organization, every congregation has ways of doing things, practices, much like I had to learn about what a, how a piñata worked. Uh, you know, I was not going to be fooled the next time that I went to a birthday party. I was going to be all in and I was going to be jumping in and be the first one there. 
Um, but, you know, we, we want to get to culture um, and, and for a couple of reasons. It sounds like, guys, is this just an extra thing? Well, you know, one, one of the ways to look at and think about culture is that, you know, in Acts 2, which is one of the most powerful pictures of what the church can be or could be, in 42 and 46, they just have some great phrases about what was going on in the church. You know, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were teaching each other and they're digging into it. Uh, you know, and, and, and they're devoted to the fellowship, to each other. They were very, very relationally connected. They shared stuff. They were together in all things. And, and the final epitaph was is that the Lord added to their number every day. Uh, those who were being saved. It, it, it would have been a tremendous experience to be a part of that and watch God move in this group of people who were all in to, to becoming all that Christ would want them to be. You know, David Brooks uh, is quoted in a book called uh, The Church Called Tove. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's a really helpful quote because I think it explains the, the challenges of culture. Uh, there's a really good part of culture and there's a challenging part of it too. And he says, never underestimate the power of the environment to work in you to gradually transform who you are. Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform you who you are. And so what that says is that culture has great power. It has transformative power. Uh, it can affect all sorts of people. Now, you know, I know for me and my family and my brothers and sisters, and mom and dad, as we were living in Mexico, we were gradually transformed. We picked up the language, we learned the practices, the values and, and different things, but we began to learn it. And it was going to transform us, and it did. Um, but, you know, that, that quote, that, that David Brooks quote, can be uh, challenging on both sides and really helpful. See, if a disciple-making culture is established in a church, in a congregation, uh, it has power to transform others and pull others into Jesus-style ministry, Jesus-style discipleship. And isn't that what we want? On the other hand, it can also be challenging because if, if the culture is not there, we have a road ahead of us to help build a different kind of culture. David Brooks, again, talks about this idea. And he says, you know, culture formation requires time. It requires relationships that evolve over time. It requires mutual interaction over time. <laughs> he says time about three times in, in that sentence. Uh, but it really does take time. You, you don't just come into a place and change it. Much like we didn't land in Mexico City and all of a sudden understand all the ins and outs of the culture in Mexico or the language. We had to learn a lot. And so culture is something that we do have to work at, and, um, and it takes time, and it's slow work. Um, in some ways, culture building is not very efficient uh, because it, we can't just kind of line people up, uh, build our Amway scheme, and, and have you know, 200 people discipled and then 200 more the next year. 
it takes time and it's slow work because language and values and practices really do get ingrained and they do transform the people that are there and they just cement them in. But it is worth it. It is worth it. So let me tell you a couple of stories. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, texted on a Sunday, <laughs> on a Sunday from a pastor, which I need normally does not text on a Sunday, but he was so excited because he had received a text from one of the guys in his quarantine. And uh, this friend had said, oh, my gosh, like, I just got back from my triad. And I can't believe how God is using me. I, I, I'm finding that I'm at a different place maturity-wise and a confidence that I just had never had. And I'm seeing the guys that I'm helping they're also being changed. And the final phrase was so good in the text. He says, you know, everyone needs to be discipled. And everyone needs to experience discipling somebody else. That was a great text. I looked at that on that Sunday, and I was so excited for my, for my pastor, friend Bob. But I was also excited, too. It was like, gosh, that's just fun to be a part of. Because we've been, I've been working with this pastor for the last couple of years in our process, our disciple-making process. A couple of days later, I get another text from the same pastor. It's Bob. Bob says, oh, my gosh, look what just happened here. Now, he's been using this uh, prayer app called uh, Bless Every Home. And it's a neat little app, and it gives you the people that live kind of around you, about 40 or so people that live in your neighborhood. And then every day you get a text to say or an email that says, hey, pray for these five folks. And so Pastor Bob has gotten about 40 people in his church using the Bless Every Home. And they're praying, they're praying for their neighbors, praying for transformation, praying a, a blessing on their people that, that, uh, uh, that live right next to them. Well, the one guy had texted Bob and said, Bob, you won't believe this. One of the guys on my list just came to faith. He just made a commitment to Christ. And this guy was so excited. He had to tell somebody. But here's the other, here's the other really cool thing is that the guy says, you know, he didn't come to our church. He went to the church down the street and he met Christ there. But the very neat thing was that these, that both of these guys, Pastor Bob and uh, the guy who had texted him, were both excited, were both thrilled that this guy had met Christ first but it didn't really matter that it was their church or not. And so those two stories highlight what can begin happening when you build a culture. It's multiple people working at this. It's not just the pastor. It's, it's not just a few people investing in, in others in the church. It begins to be most of the people are investing in other people. So why is a disciple making culture worth it? So, Here's the first thing is that, is that once it's established, it endures. So like the David Brooks quote that says that, you know, uh, never underestimate the power of, of the culture to, to change you. Um, that's true on a positive side. Once the disciple-making culture is, is put in place, it's embedded in the culture. That's exciting. That something would outlast uh, those that are investing in it right now and, and outlasting ourselves 
uh, and the pastors that are involved in it. Uh, number two, I, I think it maximizes uh, the impact in the congregation because more and more people begin to be aligned with the way that we are doing it, the shared languages, the practices. People begin seeing those things modeled. And what it does is it does mobilize others. More people begin to jump in because it's clear what's going on, and they see the excitement of disciple-making and transformation happening right in their midst. Um, And not just in pockets, but in lots of different pockets and throughout the church. Um, But I would say also, it gives us the best shot. It's like the grand slam. Stand up and take the big hit and knock it over the fence. Um, and, and, And that's when when a culture is established, when the pastor's involved and all sorts of people are involved in helping everybody get to, to full maturity and multiplication. That is really exciting. That's what the Great Commission was about. That's, that's what Acts 2 was all about as well. So we're going to talk today about the four keys to building a disciple-making culture. And uh, so there's four things that, uh, that I think are very helpful in fact, very much needed in order for this to happen. Uh, the first key is that the pastor is involved. So, you know, without the senior pastor involved in disciple making, it becomes a sideshow, not the centerpiece. You know, without the centerpiece, with, with, with it being the sideshow and not the centerpiece, it's very hard to make it uh, the main event uh, to get it to a culture. And so, um, if you want to, if you want a disciple-making past uh, culture, the pastor just simply needs to be a part of it. Uh, they need to, they need to invest their time, tithe their time to disciple-making, and be a part of it. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community. For disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So uh, when I was on staff at, at the chapel in Akron, uh, I was the group's pastor there. And one day I was finishing some of my work and I was uh, walking through the hallway, and there was a hallway that almost everybody met in because all the offices kind of came off it. So it was a real nice congregating place. And I bumped into a couple of guys, one guy that was just very animated about a new idea that he had. He was very, very excited. And, you know, his arms are flailing, and he's like, oh, guys, this is so great. This is going to happen. And uh, the other guy that was listening to him was kind of like, huh, okay. Yeah, he's sort of listening and trying to take it in. And then and then just as the, the other guy that was so excited, uh, he had a pause. The other guy says, you know, if Newt, and Newt was our senior pastor, 
He said, you know, if Newt ain't into it, it ain't going to happen. And that, that comment shocked me. What? What do you mean if Newt's not into it, you can't make it happen? I mean, aren't we leaders? Can't we kind of effectively make some change and do some things? And I remember walking away from that conversation and saying, oh, come on. I don't know if I really believe that. That, that's, uh, that's, that just sounds crazy. Well, you know, the longer that I was there, I began to realize that if Newt ain't into it, it ain't going to happen. But it's not, it wasn't just Newt's thing. It, it, it's, it's a part of what the role of the senior pastor brings, the authority and, uh, and the power that they just naturally, that that role has. Uh, the senior pastor is the gatekeeper. Uh, they're the ones that kind of say yes and get the resources and get the people there. Uh, and, and if they're not into it, uh, it's just not going to happen as well. Uh, it could be a sideshow. It could be part of the thing. And, my, and that might be all God wants to see it happen. Uh, but if you're going to get the whole church involved, that senior pastor has to begin to be a part of it. You know, in the 80s, uh, one of the really uh, fun eras for uh, Navigator Church Ministries was when a number of our staff began to design the 2-7 curriculum. It's a great curriculum that's been used for years, um, helping mature and multiply disciples, uh, not only here, but all over the world. Uh, it's translated in 54 languages. And in fact, in the Latino culture, it is it is the main tool that they use uh, across the states that is helpful for disciple making. So, but it, as we began doing that, and a number of our staff, it was it was just a tremendous time to hear how God was using that and transforming people. Uh, some of our staff kind of bumped in and realized that, you know, when the pastor's involved, it, there's a little better traction. There's more that happens uh, when the senior pastor gets involved in leading some of these groups. And so, you know, they kind of learned and we began to say, huh, you know, maybe we should spend a little more time trying to influence and help that senior pastor to get a, a passion and a heart for disciple making. Um, and so, you know, our, our mission statement is, uh, you know, partnering with church leaders. Uh, but when we think church leaders, you know, the ultimate part of that is that we think, gosh, can we partner with pastors, you know, to build disciple making cultures? Um, it is our, it, it's the way to maximize our, our influence and our time because that pastor will make sure that more happens and that it happens throughout his congregation. So it shifted our, 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 uh, really our strategy and our focus. We began to include, oh my gosh, we've got to think about pastors. You know, there's another reason, uh, why pastors need to be part of this. So, um, you know, in 1 Peter 5, there's a great verse of, you know, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. It's a key passage in, in what it means to be pastoral leadership. And, you know, that exercising oversight is that, you know, part of the role is knowing what's going on in terms of the doctrine, the practices, and what people are doing. You know, in the 70s and 80s, when uh, small groups kind of got started and uh, it was kind of the wave uh, through churches and people like Roberta Hessenings and uh, Lyman Coleman were, were uh, 
we're helping churches get into small groups. One of the big fears that pastors had, and I remember hearing some of them years later saying, oh my gosh, but what's going to go on in these small groups? I don't know if I can trust. Well, um, one of the ways for a pastor to exercise oversight is to be a part of it and to, to help the DNA get set right through all of the discipleship and disciple making that's going on. See, if the pastor's not involved, it, it can waffle a little bit and move to places that might not be within the, the scope of what the church believes uh, is discipleship and truth. Um, and so as a pastor, as a senior pastor, it, it is not only helpful, but it's a safeguard and part of their duty to be a part of this and tie their time uh, to disciple making. So our our first key to disciple making, building a disciple making culture, is is that pastor, and that that kind of leads us to our second one. And our second key is is this whole issue of alignment, um, and alignment in particular around the the ideas. Two questions: What's a disciple, and how do I make them? You know, all of us have cars, and we drive them, and we love them and hate them. But one of the things that you kind of write that you need to do, particularly when you change tires, is get the tires aligned. Get them all going straight so they're not cockeyed and crooked and wearing out the the, the tire in, in bad ways. But when you align it, it also makes the car go a lot easier. And it rolls, it rolls much easier when everything's aligned. Um, likewise, we have to do that with the church. We kind of want to have alignment in agreement on multiple levels, uh, particularly in these two areas of what's a disciple, what's our definition of a disciple, what's our picture of a disciple, and then how do we make one? So, you know, this is really the blocking and tackling of disciple making. If, if, a, if a church wants to build that culture, they be, need to begin to think about well, how are we defining carefully what it what we believe that God's word says a disciple is. And what are the principles that we see, particularly from Christ's life, about discipling others and how you do it? You know, the book of Judges ends in a really horrible way. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the saddest books of the Bible. Um, and, and once I say the phrase, we all sort of know uh, how it ends. And it's, you know, it's that recurring phrase of in those days, there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. You see, an alignment is really trying to, to get everybody to say, no, there are certain things that God wants us to do. There are certain things that God wants us to be. And we have to get everybody, not just to decide what they think is truth, but to really align around God's word and and what our leaders are saying, this is what a disciple is. And so alignment is really critical uh, because it helps us define um, what we're trying to do and how do we do it. You know, J.T. English in his book, uh, Deep Discipleship, has one of the best lines, one of the best quotes of the book is this one. Uh, and it does, it speaks to this whole alignment thing. Uh, he says, you know, a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry is the result of a lot of ministry experiments that don't fit well together and end up being one big monster. <laughs> I love that quote. You know, Frankenstein philosophy of ministry 
It is the result of a lot of ministry experiments that don't fit well together and end up being one big monster. Well, when you don't have alignment and you're not thinking through, well, what's a disciple and how do we make one? Any program, any event can seem like, oh, no, no, that fits us, just put it in. And we end up having a hodgepodge of ministries and ideas and programs and forums and support groups that don't don't rally around the Great Commission, don't rally around uh, making disciples. And I think that's a very helpful quote because we as the church have to kind of look ourselves square in the eyes and say, guys, are, are we really aligning everybody and every program around the things that we need to align them around and not just keep adding new experiments that we think might work. So Patrick Lencioni uh, has a lot to say about uh, mission statements. And, and I think it has a lot to help us with when we think about uh, our definition or our picture of a disciple. He talks about uh, that, uh, that statements, mission statements need to inspire and and accurately describe what we're supposed to do. And I think that fits. And, and uh, he says it, he says it in, uh, in one of his books, he says, you know, most mission statements, and we'll just supply uh, defining or a definition of a disciple, most definitions of a disciple neither inspire people to change the world nor provide them with accurate description of what an organization actually does. Most mission statements um, have neither inspired people to change the world nor provided them with an accurate description of what the organization actually does. You see, and that, that really fits with our, with our definition of a disciple. Um, because uh, that, that picture of a disciple needs to inspire people. It needs to help and be accurate enough that people begin to realize, oh, this is who we need to be. That This is exactly what we need to be. You know, unfortunately, what happens in most churches is because of busyness, because lots of things are going on, we decide and we, we just say, oh, you know, we go for a quick definition. Oh, it's becoming more like Christ. But we don't really accurately describe it, as Lencioni would say, uh, what it is. Or uh, the, the definition is, is kind of left so open that almost anybody kind of has an opinion about what it should be. Sort of like a, a judge's way. In those days, there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Well, everyone sees fit and how they define a, a picture of a disciple. The guy in the pew says, oh, it's just coming to church, throwing a few nickels in every week. Uh, the worship pastor might say, oh, it's those who are experiencing a praiseful experience with God and, and, and unifying with others and honoring God. The person who's working on missions in the church is, says, guys, it's really about, you know, how we, how we take Christ outside the walls of the church and serve people and, and how, we, how we help, how we have spiritual conversations and take the gospel everywhere. Well, all those things are good and, and somewhat accurate, but we want to begin to really nail down what this is. We want to inspire people and we want folks to come away with a, a very accurate sense of what they're supposed to be doing. 
you know, in our aligning how, uh, you know, we want to, uh, we want to help people know, well, how do I build one? Um, <laughs> you know, most churches, I think what happens for us is that we, uh, um, we just hand out the, the curriculum and tell folks, hey, here, here you go. Uh, run this discipleship program. And the problem with that is, is that there's no help on the how. And, uh, you know, that is such an important piece of the puzzle. It's not just the curriculum. The curriculum doesn't solve it. It really is the relationship. It's the, it's the investment. It's the, it's the help to, uh, to help people discover truth on their own, to figure out what it says and to learn how to make application and accountability. It's about relying on God for, for power to be able to have a fruitful life as we disciple others. All those things are big pieces of, of, of the how. I uh, was meeting with the pastor one time and I'll call his name Jared and Jared, uh, Jared and I were going through this workbook called the ways of the alongsider. Our friend, Bill Mowry wrote it and it's kind of been our go-to uh, piece uh, that we sit down with pastors and, and uh, walk them through disciple making. Very helpful. The funny thing is I had had years of experience in disciple making. I had 19 years of young life, nine years as a discipleship pastor at the, at the chapel and when I went through it the first time, I, I was amazed. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's stuff I've forgotten. Oh, I've never quite thought about it. And I think that's what we experience when we take pastors through. They, they, they begin to go, you know, I've missed some things or I've dropped some things. So I'm going through with this pastor and the ways alongside her. And uh, Jared's loving it and really enjoying it. And one day I said, well, so Jared, like, like how? how are you taught to make a disciple? And so he thought, huh, that's a good question. So he kind of thought about it. And uh, and then he kind of came back and said, you know, here's what I was told. He says, I know this is wrong. He says, I know it's not right. <laughs> he says, but this was sort of what was sort of passed down to me. He says, wear a really nice suit, preach a really good sermon, and have a growing congregation. He said, that's not the way. But for many churches, that's about all that we kind of do for disciple making. We kind of think, ah, life to life, disciple making, that'll happen. Maybe a church begins to think deeply about how they run their groups and they try to push them. Um, but even churches that do small groups many times leave off this whole area of life to life where there's a huge transformation, a much greater chance for uh, authentic relationships uh, and vulnerable relationships where it's very intimate. Uh, and we can begin to work through the real pain issues, the pain points that everybody has. So the how is absolutely critical. and We have to teach on that and help folks begin to learn. In our process that we take churches through that, that's a big part of what we're doing uh, uh, with them, trying to help them to understand the how. So, um, you know, in Mark chapter 13, there's there's a great passage. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Mark 3. And uh, Jesus is preaching to crowds. I mean, huge crowds, crowds that are crushing him. 
so much so that that he tells the disciples that are there with him, "Hey, get get about ready because like <laughs> we might get we might get crushed in this in this crowd." And it's a crowd that like who wouldn't want that as a pastor? Like you know, everybody loves Easter. Most pastors love Easter because it's like, oh my gosh, you just preach into a packed house. Well, he, Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. And, and I, I can imagine that he was teaching it along the way, too, because that's usually what, he, what his modus was when he was out. Well, right there in, in chapter three, it, Jesus turns on a dime, I mean, verse 13, and he's with the crowd. And yet he very purposely changes uh, what he's doing. And so... Uh, you know, what he didn't do is build a big amphitheater. Like, hey, we need to start building an amphitheater because we're going to get a lot of people. And then we need to start campuses, one in Bethesda and one down uh, over here and there. No, what he did is he chose the 12 apostles. Um, and his purpose was, and it's beautiful, you know, that, that he would be with them. It was relational. That was his purpose. The modeling that was supposed to happen. Uh, this is how he was going to get alignment. <laughs> this is how he was going to solve and help people in the future. He was going to send them out to preach, so they're going to have to learn and be taught, uh, and also to cast out demons, helping people at their deepest areas of need. Jesus knew that there was a spiritual battle going on uh, and that he needed to, to take that on. And so we want to follow Christ's methodology. I mean, that was the way that he did it in the way that he went for it. And that leads us to our third key. In our, so, so far we've talked about a couple of keys, but the pastor, in particular the senior pastor, we, we've talked about alignment issues around the what and how of discipleship. And now this one is about the core team. And so, you know, we just talked about Mark 3, and, and we can see that Jesus chose to work with a core team. Um, and that shouldn't be radical for us to do that. And yet, for most churches, uh, the pastors are not investing themselves individually in people. And in, uh, they are letting others do all that work or not even emphasize it. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. So uh, one of my friends, uh, Justin Gravitt, he wrote uh, an ebook right, right on this whole idea of, of this core team and how important it is. And it's a it's one of the most popular ebooks on uh, discipleship.org. We have it on our Navigator site too. And uh, Justin wrote, it's, it's the foundations of a disciple-making culture. And it's a really, really helpful book. As you begin to think through, well, what are the pieces, parts that I need to know to really build a disciple-making culture? How do I do that? How do I start it off well? 
So he tells a story, Justin does, of this guy named uh, Bonanno, which is a really funny name. I think, you know, uh, but Bonanno Pisano. And he was a sculptor and he was commissioned to build this building. And so he he began to do that. And, and um, um, you know, but as soon as he got started, he kind of noticed something. He kind of thought, uh, it looks like this building, is this building tilting? And nah, it's not. So he just kept building. And and uh, soon enough, he, it, it did begin to look like it was to, it was actually tilting. Um, now, Bonanno did not finish the building. Uh, there were some wars that stopped things. And then and then eventually, uh, he just got too old to, to do it. So another architect took it over. And he kind of looked at it, and he could see that it was tilted. And so he said, hey, wait, wait a minute, I, I know what we'll do. We'll fix this this building, and we'll build the walls on the tilted side higher, so that kind of levels out the, the floors, and then it won't tilt anymore. Well, the second sculptor really didn't work. It it kept tilting. It did not right itself. Um, later in the sixties, uh, they uh, they attached cables to this thing, and this is the Tower of Pisa. And so they're, they're getting strong cables to kind of hold it in place and so that it doesn't move anymore. Um, and it really wasn't until the late 90s that they, that they actually said, you know, wait a minute. We need to go down to the foundation. Uh, this, the Tower of Pisa is built on swampy land. And so what they, what they found out is that that Pisano <laughs> had only built built this building upon ten feet of uh, a foundation. Ten feet down in the ground is what he started where he started his foundation. You know, buildings today. When the World Trade One was built in New York City, um, uh, it goes down 180 feet. The caissons and the pylons go down 180 feet. 80 feet of that go into into bedrock. So, you know, the illustration, you know, you have to start with a very, very strong foundation. And cosmetic fixes don't work. And for many folks, we don't really work at the, the core issues, at that core team that is so important. How the thing starts off determines how the thing looks and how it operates. And that's the same way with a disciple-making culture. You know, one of the things that we get the most questions about when we get to this point with the church and they're trying to think through, well, okay, we're ready to form a core team. Uh, they kind of, <laughs> the first question, well, who do I invite? How do, how do I start this off right? And it is, it's a very important question. You know, in Mark 6, yeah, we see how important that was because Jesus prayed all night for the disciples. That Then he, he chose them. And so it's not willy-nilly that we just kind of say, oh, yeah, let's just, whoever, I like Charlie and Sue, they're good. Let's just bring them on. Uh, no, you know, Jesus had a, had a definite prayer strategy because he wanted to get that right. Because he also knew that the foundation of the church at that point in time was, was very, very important. So, uh, you know, Howard Hendricks has given us one of the best acronyms. You know, it's the FAT acronym, uh, Faithful, Available, Teachable. And, you know, people have said that forever. And, 
Howie Hendrick was the only one who could really say it the right way because he had such a charismatic uh, winsomeness about himself. And so, uh, but we've added a couple extra letters onto that that I do think really help clarify what the people who should be on the core team should be like. So obviously it's faithful. That's the F. The A is available. We would add I, uh, initiative. You know, they're showing some go get them. They're already doing things. They're not just sitting around saying, oh, I I, I can't do anything. I'm unavailable. Uh, T is teachable. And the last, the H for faith, uh, that's heart. Heart for God, heart for people. You know, if people don't love others, that, uh, that is a major uh, uh, challenge for building a disciple-making culture. I, I just finished reading uh, the section of John, which is John 13 through 17, which is the last night that uh, his last teaching with the disciples. You know, and woven through every one of those chapters is love one another. Love one another. Love one another. It's not just John 13. It's in John 15. Uh, it's in John 17. It's just woven all the way through that. And if we want to have a disciple-making culture like Jesus wants to have a disciple-making culture, we need to have people who have heart, really love him, and love others. Uh, because in the long run, that ends up making the biggest difference. So, so far, we, we have talked about uh, three things. We've talked about uh, to build a disciple-making uh, culture, we need uh, we need the pastor. Uh, we need alignment around the what and the how of disciple-making. Uh, we also need to start the core team off on a strong foundation. Uh, and the fourth one is persistence. So, so pastor, alignment, core, and persistence. You know, uh, I've already read the quote, but it's it's worth saying it again. Um, the quote from David Brooks, um, he says, you know, culture formation requires time. It requires relationships that evolve over time. So it just takes time and persistence. And unfortunately, many of us, many of us are not patient people. Um, and we, we are much more efficient uh, than effective, uh, much more just want to get it done and get everything nailed down and buttoned down. Let's just have 200 people, 200 disciple-making groups right away, as opposed to doing the slow and steady pace and slowly building the culture, the language, the stories, the practices. Um, if we want to build a culture that outlasts us, we're going to have to spend the time, the relational capital, the time. There is no way around it. Uh, it can't be kind of an ancillary uh, time that we give to it. It needs to be an ongoing process uh, that we continue to speak into and that we intentionally, individually and together say we are going to be about these things. One of the guys that influenced us a ton uh, as we uh, were working on uh, a disciple-making culture is a guy named Ray Sheck, and Ray is a Lutheran pastor out in the East Coast. And, and uh, Ray uh, kind of figured out very early on that, that he needed to have a core team. We didn't even tell him he needed it. He just knew he did. Uh, but Ray is still pastoring, and, and uh, 
And imagine in his new church, he's already started another core team to speak into disciple making and to keep that as a part of what he does. He realized that if you don't have that team and ongoing um, maintenance and commitment to it, that that you will not win the game. Uh, we are swimming against culture, uh, against the people who would rather just kind of come to church and sit. And if we want to get to a disciple making culture, it 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 involves change, which means we have to have put energy towards that. Uh, it, it involves a commitment to daily continue to do that. You know, I told her told you earlier about uh, my family growing up in Mexico and. Um, it, you know, it was, it, it's absolutely for our, my, my brothers and sisters, uh, kind of the highlight of our life in some ways. Uh, it was so formative, fun. It was such an adventure. Um, but, you know, we, when we moved to Mexico, we didn't learn Spanish the next day. In fact, we really didn't learn it very well the first six months. Oh, we could say, donde está el baño? But we really couldn't have a real conversation. You know, part of the hard work of learning a language, learning a culture, is that you have to stay in it. And you have to stay in it and be persistent. And not only learn the words, but learn how to pronounce them correctly. You see, my, my dad would... Uh, my dad worked uh, in a factory, um, kind of uh, the quality control. And so he had to work with a lot of folks who only knew Spanish and some who knew English and Spanish. And so his Spanish was okay, uh, but he never got the, the accent down. Now, my brothers and sisters and I, uh, we did get the accent down, but it took time and it took effort. Um, it does help when you're younger to learn a language because you do you you hear the sounds and your mind can pick it up a little easier. But you know, in language, it, it's so nuanced because you have to not only learn what how to translate individual words, but you need to understand the connotation of a word. You see, so language is very very refined. It's it you have to know what that word means. Um, and how it means and what it means in the context. And then you throw in slang and idioms, which is uh, which makes language even harder. Um, we had to stay persistent at learning language uh, and at learning Spanish. When we moved back to the States, it, it was interesting. My, uh, my mom went, uh, went to uh, night school uh, just to continue brushing up on her Spanish. Because uh, she just wanted to really learn it. So here she was 40 years later, and she's still working to get the language down. Um, if we're going to be persistent in uh, building a disciple-making culture, it's going to be because we're persistent like that, to learn all the nuances, to help it be absolutely clear and inspiring for folks to jump into what it means to be a disciple and how they make one of my favorite verses has become the Psalm 126, and it's it's meant a ton to me, and it speaks right into this idea of persistence. Uh, hey, you know, any kind of leadership is hard, right? Anybody who's led kind of goes, oh, my, there are seasons where you just don't know what to do. 
Psalm 126, listen to what it says, because it's spoken a ton to me in the midst of of the battle. Uh, He says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So, you know, again, it's a biblical metaphor and it's it's a gardening metaphor and and it's sowing. It's putting the seed in the ground. You know, putting a seed in the ground is a really quiet thing. There's no noise. There's no fanfare. It's just it's just kind of put the thing out there and get it going. Um, You know, but if you don't put the seeds out quietly and get them in the ground, you have no shot at having uh, having the reaping the reward. Um, and it, it many times, uh, you know, in this passage, it says, you know, you can be weeping while you're sowing. Uh, there can be things where you're going, gosh, I just do not feel like doing this today. I am so out of, out of energy. I just do not have it today. And yet to have the intentionality to say, no, I got my seed. I'm going to go out and do my seed. I'm going to plant my seed and do it right. And I'm gonna give. I'm gonna put the time in. I, I love the garden. Uh, I'm doing it right now. I've. Uh, I love tomatoes. I've got a bunch of tomatoes that I've already started on flats. Put the seeds in. Been waiting. I've been tending them and nourishing them. Sometime late May, I'll get to put them out. And maybe in July, I'll start tasting you know, the fruit of my labor. And it'll be fun. It'll be really, really good. Um, We have to do the small investments with people, with our churches, with groups, to make sure that we are getting and building towards a disciple-making culture. Quietly doing the small little things uh, that mean a ton. Getting with someone. Making time for somebody making sure that they are following up with the things that they need to follow up with. It's small little things that, that build disciples that build disciples. One of the guys that we've bumped into uh, has really lived this out and has kind of battled uh, this whole challenge to build the disciple-making culture. And Dave Holm, uh, he's uh, one of our pastors that has gone through our three-year process and He'd had a core team formed and they're getting going. And in the middle of that, he kind of realized life kind of happened and he and they had to kind of stop what they were doing. Well, they they had to take a six-month hiatus or some time off. So by the time that happened, he had to restart, uh, get some more other other folks into this this core team and get started again. Well, yeah. Uh, a little while later, he again he had to stop the whole process because life just happened, um, and so now one of the beautiful things is that on his third try of getting a core team together, the core team really stuck, and now they are building a disciple making culture. Um, he spoke to our staff and one of our training thing, and it was so encouraging to everybody because it was that persistence, that willingness to continue to battle, to fight, uh, to continue doing the right things, even though. The odds were against them, and it was not um, it was not easy. So uh, today we've talked about the keys of a disciple making culture. So and it's about getting the pastor involved. It's about alignment on on the what and the how, and it's about 
starting the core team off right and picking the right people. Uh, but it's also about persistence and sticking to it, uh, doing the right things and continuing doing the, the intentional small acts that, that build to something big. Uh, it's been great to be with you. Uh, if what I shared today spoke to you, uh, if it was helpful, uh, you know, we'd love to help you further. Um, uh, you can write us in a couple ways. Uh, you can write us in ncm uh, at navigators.org, or you can even hop onto our, our website. And we, on the resource tabs, we have a bunch of things that can help you begin to consider a disciple-making culture. Uh, probably, and maybe there might be some of you who are saying, guys, I would love to be a part of uh, this team. Uh, guys, I would love to help other churches figure this out. Uh, we're always looking for other folks who have who share this heart uh, to build disciples that make disciples and to do it uh, and uh, to build a culture. Uh, also, just email us at ncm uh, at navigators.org. So, hey, it's been great to be with you. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we will talk later. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I want to ask you to click subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date every time I release new episodes weekly. And don't forget, the discipleship.org forum is just around the corner, October 5th and 6th. I would love to see you there. Head over to discipleship.org to buy those tickets. All right, y'all. Have a great day and stay safe out there. Mm-hmm.